0: Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer.
1: Welcome. Today, we'll talk about California kelp forests and the infamous kelp-dwelling fish, the Garibaldi. My guest today is Noah Randall. Noah is interning at the Ocean River Institute this spring. She graduated from Cambridge, Ringe and Latin uh, last spring. That's the local high school. And Noah plans visit, will be attending Smith College in the fall. Hello, Noah. Hi, Rob. Hi. Uh, Noah, I, you know, we've got a lot of snow around here. It's, it's still February, and we've had a bit of uh, blizzarding around here. So there's, there's quite a bit of, of, of wintry conditions. And yet, you somehow managed to get here to work uh, by your own means. How do you do that?
2: Well, I have a pretty trusty bicycle um, that that works fairly well. No, you yeah. ride a bicycle and four feet of snow, it's like going by Mount Rainier
1: out there and stuff.
2: Yeah, well, when you're from New England, you make do. I mean, well, I've
1: seen you all dressed up with 37 layers and hats. and.
2: Yeah, you just have to keep your ears covered and try to stay warm.
1: And and what do you have to watch out for, like ice patches and polar bears? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sounds about
2: right.
1: (laughs) So um, it's really great to have you interning here at the Ocean River Institute. And I was impressed by your application that you have actually been out on the ocean. And few people have really seen, had, had the opportunity to see the land from the sea as opposed to just standing on a beach and looking out. So I think that's a really neat perspective. Uh, and it gives you a good perspective on ocean conservation. Uh, how did you first go to sea, or how did you get out there?
2: Yeah, so um, a couple summers ago, I had the opportunity to be on a Sea Education Association um, program for high school students. So there are about 18 students, um, and we uh, went to California on the coast and um, got in a ship and sailed around. So,
1: What was the name of the ship?
2: Uh, it was called the Robert C. Siemens.
1: Wow! Lucky you. So it had like two masts and sails, and
2: yeah, it had I think three masts actually. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Wow. Huge steering wheel.
1: So what was that like out in the ocean with a sailboat?
2: Tell us about the boat. Yeah. So um, the Robert C. Siemens is a pretty big ship. It's called a tall ship. Um, it's about 134.5 feet long, um, with a lot, a lot of sails. Um, so. And each one has its own purpose, so depending on where you're trying to go, you should be, and depending on the conditions, you have to use different sails. Sometimes you don't even put them, pull them all the way up to full mast, you just put them to half mast. So um, I had to learn about, like, the lines um, that are used to pull up and down each uh, sail, and then also how important it was that everyone works together, um, because, they're really heavy sails. I mean, they're huge. Uh, so you have to make sure that everyone's pulling at the same time and the same direction. Yeah.
1: And you make sure you know what the line goes to before you uncleat it.
2: Right, because otherwise you're making yourself
1: a lot of extra work. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> So there were no disasters. It was a good sail.
2: No, luckily we. it was pretty smooth.
1: Clear sailing. Yeah. Um, and uh, so what was it like living on the boat?
2: So. How many, many were you? Yeah. So, we were about 18 students, and then um, for uh, each set of... So, we were broken up into watches. So, um, each watch had about six students. So, there were three watches, um, and each watch was assigned a mate. So, that was the person who was pretty much in charge of running ship at the time that you were on watch. And then you had a scientist um, who helped you, like, lead experiments on the ship, and then a couple of um, crew members. So... Maybe let's say three crew members per. There were probably like 40 people, or so, on the ship. Yeah,
1: so right. And so you just work nine to five and then go to bed and Mm. (laughs)
2: stuff. Only we had some pretty uh, crazy shifts. Like um, depending on what time it was, you had either a four or a seven-hour shift. So um, the The dawn watch, yeah, Yeah, the dawn watch watch was from 3 a.m. or 0300 to 0700. You get to watch the sunrise. Um, but if you work the morning shift then it's from oh seven hundred to um, I guess yeah. Like one thirteen hundred, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so depending on what time.
1: but so you have to do two all the, the two half day shifts. Right. And the morning shift, the afternoon shift
2: and then until like
1: seven PM. Yeah. And then someone comes up and it stands watch from seven to twelve. Twelve and then or eleven and then yeah. and then eleven to three Right, or Right. So the midnight watch. Did you get to spend midnight watch ever?
2: Yeah, oh, definitely. (laughs) I got to do all the watches. So if you do the midnight watch, then you don't have to wake up till like two in the afternoon.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm sure you didn't sleep a whole lot on the boat. Uh, I bet there was a lot happening there.
2: Yeah. Um, What's going on?
1: So, um, and then after you uh, were at sea for all that time, you uh, um, got to spend ten days ashore on um, Catalina Island at the USC Wrigley Institute. Mm-hmm. And I understand that um, that's a fabulous place. I've had the opportunity to be out there; it's just gorgeous, aren't you? Wonderful?
2: Yeah, they have really nice facilities. Yeah,
1: and you're out there, you know, with the ocean next to you. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, where did you? Uh, and so you went on to develop some research pro a research project with a, a fellow student.
2: Yeah, I did. I um, so this um, a girl named Emily and I um, we were really both interested in snorkeling more. Um, we had a little bit of experience doing that. Um, before this research project that we started, but we wanted to continue doing that. So we thought one way that we could um, get into the water again was to sort of research the population distribution um, and compare of a, of a fish and compare the juveniles and the adults um, and see where the juveniles spent more of their time and where the adults spent more of their time and see if there was a difference. <laughs> um, so one fish that sort of stood out to us as we were on our previous circles was the Garibaldi. So that's what we chose to to study. Um,
1: so, tell us about this reef dwelling fish called the Garibaldi. I mean, it sounds like some big Italian guy walking around or something, looking for spaghetti or something. <laughs> why, why is it called the Garibaldi?
2: Um, so it's called the Garibaldi um, because um, there was an Italian named Giuseppe Garibaldi uh, who, in his time, around 1840, or oh before then, uh, started wearing orange shirts regularly, just by huh. chance. Um, that was his style. So um, he, um, when he was alive, fought for the uh, reunification of Italy and became a general and was and died as a national hero. So when the fish was discovered in 1840, um, its personality seemed to match his. He was very outgoing and... Um, trying to make a statement all the time, and that seemed to be how the Garibaldi also act.
1: Yeah, I had the good fortune to actually swim into the kelp forest at Catalina Island. And outgoing is a good word for the Garibaldi. Why is that? <laughs>
2: well, they're, <laughs> they like to, um, they're pretty territorial. So they, they come out at you as a swimmer and make this thumping sound, which you have no idea where it's coming from <laughs> until you find out that it's from them. Um, and they're it's there's a, to, six, a yeah. four- or six-inch yeah. fish and it's a little guy. Yeah, it? it's, it's pretty yeah. small. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually a kind of damsel fish, which is funny. Big something
1: noises, little yeah. fish. Yeah,
2: yeah so um, this bright orange fish comes out at you and uh, makes these noises. And it's, it's really territorial, so they, they want to, I mean, make sure that no other fish come into their area when, when they're there because it's their home. They yeah. don't want to be disturbed um, or attacked. But once they, once they realize that you're not going away, they, they move away. <laughs> so you and your snorkel and mask, they mistook for a fish coming in? or I guess so. Uh, were you
1: snorkeling, snorkeling or scuba diving?
2: We were snorkeling. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's so great because you can just be at the surface and be down a little bit, look around.
2: Yeah.
1: I like that much more than, than scuba diving. It's the freedom you get.
2: And you can do some free diving too.
1: Yeah. Without oh, great. Oxygen. That's right. You can just dive down. Dive down. <laughs> Hold your breath. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, so are, are the
2: Garibaldi fishing?
1: Oh, thank you. <laughs> what, did, what did you and Emily find out about the Garibaldi?
2: Um, so we found out, based on sort of our observational experiment, that the juveniles tend to hide really way back in the, the rock crevices and behind the, the kelp stems. Um, because they they're you know they're just really young and they don't know how to to act sort of out and see um, and the the males are very prominent and come out at you um, and show and um, show their dominance over their area. Um, but once they realize, like I said, that you're not moving, they then go back and hide with their with their kin because they do not want to get eaten or attacked. So. So, you guys uh, set up an experiment to
1: to look at them or
2: yeah we um we set up a transect line and did timed observations um, to, you know we said we'd look at for a certain amount of minutes along this line as we were swimming and note the amount of juveniles and the amount of um, adults that we saw, uh, and then we'd take a break and do it again to try to avoid seeing duplicates um, so we we tried to make our our methods... Oh, so you did the same transect line a couple times. Right. And
1: the idea is the fish move around. You didn't have to move the line around. Right.
2: Yeah. And then we also, we were trying to see if there was, if they spent more time near the, the rock wall or out in open water. So we had another transect, or the transect line divided these. So we counted the amount of fish near the rock wall and the amount of fish in the open water um, so we could get a sense.
1: So where do you find more more adult Garibaldis?
2: So um, you find more of all the Garibaldi near the rock wall. But all of them, yeah. Right. But once in a while you get a um, Garibaldi going out into the overall water. Not just an adult who's right. being territorial or,
1: right. or just being wayward and <laughs> setting out where we shouldn't be or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what was the – I'd like to talk a few more minutes about Garibaldi. it's cool yeah. what you did there with the church so what did you guys find? Um, so well, you guys, you told me what you found.
2: They, they behaved the way they supposed. Yeah, right? they behaved the way they were supposed to. Which was, <laughs> I guess <laughs> good, it was expected. Um, so, but but I can talk more sort of about what we were doing on Catalina. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, yeah. So when we weren't in the water doing this research, we also were having some instructional periods by some of the scientists that were on the ship um, who know a lot of, about marine biology because they're professors. Um, or they or graduate students, um, so we got to have you know um, we went on field trips to like look at these shrimp that were in near the mud flat and um, oh the the ghost crabs that come out ghost of the, crabs. that come out of the mud with their huge huge pincers on one arm and nothing almost on the other. <laughs> that was pretty cool um, and what else did we look at? Oh, we did some. We looked in quadrats of the along the coast, so to count the number of anemones and kelp sort of so that we were seeing. There are
1: different kind of bottoms that you put quadrants into, like rocky bottoms and kelpy bottoms, or
2: yeah. So we were doing it on the on the shore, yeah. um, but
1: on the intertidal zone, right?
2: In the intertidal zone, yeah. So depending if you're in the splash zone or right. closer towards the water.
1: If you're looking for sea urchins. They're going to be below the
2: slash Right. They're
1: going
2: to be right. So, so how
1: are sea urchins doing? Got a lot of sea urchins, or are they getting eaten by other things?
2: Um, there are quite a few, but um, the sea otters are are ah. doing their job. Yeah.
1: The sea otters like the sea urchins.
2: Right. The sea otters like the sea urchins, and that was sort of a problem earlier on. Um, that uh, in back in history, I don't remember exactly when, but a lot of the otters were being killed off, and as a result, because um, people were using their pelts, they wanted to sell the pelts um, or trade them. So once the sea otter population declined enough, the a sea urchin population was able to grow more because there was nothing keeping it in check. So, And sea urchins love kelp, um, so the, a lot of the kelp was going away from this kelp forest. Right. Too many
1: sea urchins
2: left kelp. Right. But then so. the otters came back. Right, I think some the. Or they have been coming back slowly. They have been coming back. I think some were reintroduced, and other ones that were there um, were are now, you know, breeding with with the introduced ones. So the population is growing.
1: That's think, great. Did yeah. you actually see a sea otter?
2: We didn't see any sea otters. Oh, well, when we were when we were at sea, we saw some sea otters. Not near the shore, but.
1: You're all on the Robert Siemens. Right. You're we offshore, and. Um, there were a few out there. <laughs> and what, were they lounging or were they moving? They or? were on their
2: backs. They were on their backs. As they, as they tend to be. Did you see them
1: something a, a sea urchin or something with it?
2: They had a piece of kelp. They had a piece
1: of kelp and yeah. They're lying on their
2: back with a piece of kelp. Yes, yes. About how many do you think? Oh, we probably saw only two.
1: Yeah. While well, we were out there. But all of two. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> it's it <still> <laughs> that's, that's great. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a short break, and then when we come back, we're going to talk more about the ecology of the kelp forest that you got to experience. Yeah, sounds good.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry,
1: or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android
2: Market.
0: listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at one 472 5788 Again, that's one 472 5788 You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer.
1: Hi, we're back, and my guest today is Noah Randall, who is interning at the Ocean River Institute, Um, and if you'd like to uh, learn more about what we're doing, please visit our website at www.oceanriver.org, oceanriver is one word, .org. And if you'd like to write to Noah about anything on the program or anything Ocean River related, uh, the best way to reach Noah is at info, I-N-F-O, at oceanriver.org, and all of us will see that email coming in, and so we'll get it to Noah as well. Um, Noah's been telling us about uh, the kelp forest of Catalina Island and her encounters with Garibaldi and sea otters, and uh, how are the... Uh, What's being done to protect the Terribaldi, or are they, they're in danger? What's the situation with those, those fish?
2: Yeah, so they're not uh, in dire need of help, but they have been um, live caught for aquarium takes, or they used to be, um, for a while. So their numbers were going down. Um, but um, once they were designated as the California State Fish, um, so now you know what the California State Fish is, um, they, their numbers have been rebounding because people have they've gained popularity. Um, so recreationally, people haven't been able to take them since 1953 um, because of the, um, it, the decreased numbers due to the aquarium trade. Um, and in 1995, they were actually designated as the marine fish, um, and now they are pro- permanently prohibited um on the shore of Catalina, where I was to take them. So that's why we saw so many and were able to sort of see them in their natural habitat as as they
1: normally are. Well, that's great. So Catalina Island provides sanctuary for the Garibaldi fish.
2: Yeah, actually, the place where we were, which is called Big Fisherman Cove, that's where we were doing our research. Um, that specific area is a marine protected area. So it's a no-take zone and the only way you can do research there is by observation um, within the can't uh, take them
1: when you're researching right. your Do not you disturb all of them. Showing your face in his territory.
2: Exactly. And so, how's the population doing today? Um, so the numbers have be, been um, rebounding, but they're not completely um, restored. Even though there's been a ban on the commercial and recreational um, take of them. So hopefully they'll continue to. So slippery. it's good to maintain that marine protected
1: area. There, it's good to have the sanctuary. It's so easy. You can just walk in off the beach. You just get some snorkel and flippers and a mask, and you can just walk in right there and swim with the kelp yeah, exactly. forest and the Jerobaldi. Yeah, it's Wonderful public access to get there. Um, so tell us more about the kelp uh, the ecosystem. What's what's in there?
2: Yeah, so the kelp forest is a really cool ecosystem. Um, when I was studying marine biology in high school, I always wanted to sort of have the opportunity to see it, because though we have a really cool ecosystem off the coast of Massachusetts, you know, it's always fun to see something different. Um, so the, a major player, of course, in the kelp forest is the giant kelp, um, which is called Macrocystis pyrifera.
0: Um,
2: it's, a, it's a brown algae, and it can grow up to 18 inches per day, so it's really fast-growing, um, which is great for the urchins who love to eat it. <laughs> um, and... So they can live for a pretty long time, like seven years, and um, they all have, you know, each, each piece of kelp has particular characteristics, like um, the whole fast or the roots um, that attach it to the bottom, the rocky bottom. And then it has pneumatics, which are gas-filled sacs that allow um, it to be able to float. Um, and, and those are at the base of each blade. So that means that the, the kelp is going to be growing up towards the, the sun and it can sort of hold itself there in the water. Um, and they, yeah, so they provide a lot of food and shelter for the organisms that stay there, and um, they're super important in this ecosystem.
1: It's amazing how long it gets, and it must keep growing, because I see it sometimes just kind of sort of flattens out top the top.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think so. They grow really fast.
1: So we don't see that with our rockweeds here in Massachusetts. They, no. they barely reach the surface, but they never flag out off no, the surface. No,
2: yeah. They're hardly
1: the surface area of these kelp things.
2: Yeah,
1: and, and there are other algae in there, like brown algae, and, and uh, uh, what are some of the um, what are some of the fish besides the garibaldi? Yeah,
2: so there are a lot of pretty cool fish. One that I thought was really interesting was the sheephead, which is actually a sequential hermaphrodite. So that means they start as uh, they all start as female. They're born female, and then um, at a certain point in their life, they go through a sex change and become male. Um,
1: How can you tell when they change?
2: So the females are completely pink or red, um, and then when they become male, the back and the front um, turn black, and the middle stays red. So those are pretty interesting.
1: So when you're swimming, you see both all red ones and black and red ones? Yes. And so then you know you've got male and female. Right. right. Sheephead.
2: Those are pretty big fish, too. They're pretty beefy. Um, So those were cool to see. And then you have a lot of smaller ones that... um, smaller fish that go in and out um, in the kelp. So the kelp bass, which looks a lot like kelp, um, <laughs> according to its name, um, and the giant kelp fish, which is another kind of fish that looks similar to kelp, but it has slightly different coloring. Um, I think it, that one's slightly more brown.
1: Mm.
2: Um, and there are a couple others, like the oval eye has a, I think it has a white dot um, on its lower section. Um, and there's half moon and halibut, and then there are some other really, really small ones that are about, like, three inches long or so. So the blacksmith and the rock grass and the senorita are all, um, fish that are really common around that area, but they're sometimes harder to see because they're super small. So, um, those are really cool, and I saw a lot of different ones of those. Oh, that's great. Um, but there's also one called the giant black sea bass. um, do you know anything about that?
1: Species? Oh yeah, the giant sea bass is a sea bass is a very popular uh, sport fish. It's really good eating, and it um, it frequents those shallow waters, or like near the kelp forest, mm-hmm. or just uh, a little bit offshore of that. So they're a real coastal fish. So it's convenient for fishermen, um, and they're really good swimmers given their bulky size. But they're fast enough to uh, catch a mackerel, and the mackerel looks like a tiny little tuna fish. It's a very fast-swimming, oily fish. Mm -hmm. And hundreds of thousands of pounds of these giant black sea bass have been caught by commercial fisheries. And hundreds of the big fish have also been landed every year by the sport fishery. So this has become a black sea bass is a big gang quarry for free diving and for scuba diving uh, spear fishermen. Uh, And then in the 70s, uh, they were taking a lot of these big fish out of Santa Cruz Island. And so uh, back then they weren't even able to eat all the fish they were taking, so they would sell it illegally onto the fish market. And that, um, that gig was up when the fishermen uh, in the market, the fish in the market actually had the holes of the spear guns in the fish in the market. Ah. And so the, the authorities said, this isn't right. Uh, you know, you, you just can't do this. And so they have, uh, they now recognize the fishing game, the California fishing game, recognize the local populations of giant sea bass are in trouble and they've outlawed the sea fishing. And so more actions went into effect in the early 80s to better manage the commercial fisheries as well. And so under protection, the population size of the giant sea bass in California seems to be increasing. There are more of them. There are nice big ones around. However, through the lack of hard data, it's hard to tell for sure whether they are doing okay or they're, they're inc- you know, increasing mm-hmm. or declining.
2: But that's great that the the government is really trying to Um, make sure that the fish are staying, uh, being sustainably fished and their stock um, is at a good...
1: Right. So the Fishery Council worked it out so that uh, the right amount of sea bass are being, well, they're not being fished, they're being protected, so that um, they they are, uh, well, maybe they are, I guess they're being managed, and so that they're managing them well because the population is looking good and stuff. And so it's a good example of how the government can work with the fishing community to have a sustainable fishery.
2: Yeah, and that's super important to make sure that we continue to have the fish we like to eat in the waters so that they can keep producing. And Right, and
1: we like our fishermen yeah. to be employed, right. and we want them to be catching the surplus fish. And um, they're sort of like, you know, I see them as sort of like firemen. When there's smoke, you want to see firemen putting out the smoke. And when there's an abundance of fish, you want, like the firemen, highly trained, well-equipped fishermen harvesting in the abundance, but not, but not taking more than the 52 and and stuff. Um, so um, are there sharks in the kelp forest?
2: Um, yeah, there are actually. Uh, you can see them from the shore, which is really actually surprising and kind of cool. Um, so there are leopard sharks. That's the major kind. Um, and um, they're bought. I mean, they look like leopards. They have that kind of spotting patterns. Um, what kind of size are we talking so they're about four to five feet long. Four to five, yeah. Yeah. So they're not super big, but and they're they're pretty flat and they stay towards the bottom near the sand.
1: So do you think twice about going in the water when you see a shark out there? Not like really. The
2: they uh, they're pretty harmless. Yeah. I mean, they don't really want to attack you. They swim away um, usually when you come by, but when they're congregating, um, so sometimes there are about thirty sharks together. Yikes! Nice. Yeah, you can swim right over them and they don't quite notice.
1: Right, because they're deeper down and
2: you can just flow along the surface right. and go over them. Right. So, that was really cool to see. Um, and, yeah, so they usually tend to be over the, the sandy bottom. Um, mm. And they eat, like, clams and crabs and other bony fish that they can that they can see yeah. in, that, in that bottom. So they can right. pick off the bottom. Right, the right. Bottom um, But something that I thought was really cool about these is that they're um, ovoviviparous which means that they don't lay eggs externally, but they lay eggs within them, and then the shark hatches like hatches from the egg within them, and then there's a live birth. So that, because they're not nourished by the, the mother, they're nourished by the yolk of the egg, but they're still born right. alive, which is right. really cool. I it's think. cool, but it means you have sl- uh,
1: fewer offspring right. than if you just laid a whole ton of eggs. That's true. That is true. Uh, but maybe the mother can help take care of them or something. Mm. Probably not likely, but at least they help them until they're born and free and stuff. Yeah,
2: so um, they, because of the, you have to be careful about um, making sure that they're not fished um, because if they get fished too much, then they're not going to be able to, their stock isn't going to be able to grow very fast because they can have so few.
1: Right. So few births at a time. Right. But, yeah, that's a bigger challenge to manage that's so cool you got to see the leopard sharks
2: yeah
1: um yeah so they, they seem to be holding their own in there um we are not too worried about them no what other sharks do you see down there
2: well there's um something called the shovel nose guitar fish no. um which is yeah so it that's a fish <laughs> it's uh it's in a ray family so sharks and rays are pretty
1: yeah
2: connected. so yeah uh it's a yeah, relative it's of a shark. right yeah right um so they they're called the guitar fish because they look like a guitar. Um, they're
0: they're headed, kind of
2: right. Their head and body is like the where you would play the guitar, and then the,
0: the, neck, is the neck. The neck
2: is the tail. I guess yeah. So
1: wrists on that. Do you <laughs>
2: what do you know about them?
1: Um, what do I know about them? <laughs> well, like you said, they're, it's really cool that they are um, you know they're compressed from the belly to the back and that. The uh, shovel nose is um, it matches the, the, the sandy bottom where it's olive to dark and it's sandy brown, black back colors. Mm-hmm. And so it camouflages right into the sea floor with uh, a sandy kind of bottom. And then to reduce the intake of sand, the guitar fish does not breathe in water through its mouth on the bottom side, but instead it takes in water through sphericals on, in holes on the
2: top. Oh, of the right head. near its eyes.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's like overgills, and then, and, well, then the, the water's pulled over their gills and comes out through the gill opening. So they're able to really sit in the sand and um, inhale the water through the, behind their eyes. You right. know? And um, so they will. They'll bury themselves in the sand, ready to ambush their prey at, in the daytime. And then at night, they cruise around and grab things that don't see so well in the dark, I guess. Mm. So uh, the name... Um, the, the Latin name, the genus name, is means shark ray, and that's because they're flattened like a ray, but they have the dorsal, the back fins like a, and the tail like a shark. So mm-hmm. it's the worst of both worlds for the fish there.
2: Yeah, I was just.
1: And they're considered to be. Oh, we like to say the old guitar fish has been playing it flat for over a hundred million years. <laughs> yuck! 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 All right. So what else we got in the marine and the kelp forest
2: there? Um, so there's a. Uh, there are a couple other things. So there's a California sea lion, which was also in decline like the um, otters. But they are doing pretty well. And I got to see one, actually, when I was snorkeling one day. There was one about, oh, I'd say it was like 15 feet away. Wow. That was pretty scary. Were you in the kelp stuff
1: or were you clear in clear water? We
2: were in the kelp. You were Because that's really scary because you've got these curtains
1: hanging around. Oh, yes. Yeah. So you don't know what's around the corner. No,
2: so there was a, a huge sea lion that looked like it could have attacked us. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, it looks as big as you. Oh. Because oh, that yeah. magnifies a little bit, and, and yeah. you don't expect to see living things of that size no.
2: in yeah. the water. And if you're in this area, you don't know what it could so do. So <laughs> swim way faster? <laughs> <laughs> we sort of chased each other. It worked out.
1: <laughs> Both went out.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, so those were pretty cool to see. Kind of blackish? Um, they're more uh, gray. Oh, gray. Yeah. Huh. I think gray and spotty. Yeah.
1: Kind of yeah. So speckled. It.
2: Right. Um, So those were really cool. And some other things that you can kind of see near the rock wall um, is a spiny lobster. Um, So we saw probably, I think there was one day where we saw five when we were snorkeling. Um, So they like to hide underneath the rocks and come crawl out a little bit to get some food and then crawl back in.
1: I'm told you have to watch out that there may be a moray eel that's adopted the spiny lobster. And so go to grab the. Tiny lobster. You may have a more a eel hanging like okay. on your wrist or something. Oh, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. But you guys weren't That's interested
1: cool. in picking up the anemones.
2: Yeah. I think some, but yeah, there weren't the ones we picked up didn't have eels attached. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: you didn't come attached with eels. Lucky right. you.
2: Yeah, um, and there's some other pretty cool things. Like there are a lot of anemones, different kinds, that um, some of them tend to be on shore, like outside, out of the water, and other ones are fully immersed. Um, and then there's some snails, too, that, that like to eat the kelp and live on it. Um, and like I said, urchins. So those are... The two snails are cool. kind of cool. Tell me about the tooth snails. Oh, yeah, two snails. So so two snails, I think, are really fun. I, I think it's really cool that they can build their own shells, but, like, on a wall. Um, so, you know, I learned about it in the classroom, and I, you know, did some creature feature, like, presentations about them, um, but, you know, seeing them, be able to touch them for the first time was really incredible. And nobody else thought they were really cool because, you know, there's these little snails coming out of a shell. Well, tell us about that. They're not like periwinkles. They're no. So, yeah, so they um, they build a shell and then um, attach it to the wall. And they're pretty, I mean, they're not huge, but they're about maybe an inch, two inches yeah. um, in diameter. Uh, and they have this these feathery these feathery parts that, that stick out from the their center tube, I guess you could say. Um, so the mouth is in the middle, and then the feathers they extend out like in a plume, and then they use it to um, bring food into their mouth. Uh, so they so as the the water moves around them, they can catch food with these feathers.
1: Um, so they're sort of like really pretty plumed barnacles. Or, yeah, you know because they're they're well attached to the rocky substrate. Right, and then they have these gorgeous plume tentacle things.
2: Thing. Yeah, and there are a lot of different kinds of tube snails, too, but depending on um, what kind it is, they have different colored plumes. Like, I think the Christmas tree snails are what they're called. Those are related, um, and they, like their name, are look like Christmas trees. Some of them are green, some of them are red. Oh, cool. And they're very decorative, yeah. And so do they tend to close up when you come by and
1: you have to wait for them to open, or they tend to ignore you? Or? Um,
2: yeah, so if you try to touch them, they close up because they don't want their mouths to be, you know, disturbed. Um, But if you wait long enough, they'll they'll open back up again because they want to eat. Yeah, so, and also they, so they eat through this center hole, and they also are, um, they spawn through it, so their gametes are released through this same opening um, when it's time to do that spawning. Yeah, so those are.
1: Very cool. So there's a whole myriad of different
2: critters that
1: make the kelp forest their home.
2: Yeah, and that's what's, it's super important that, you know, all these creatures, like, ha- live in their own little niches within this kelp forest, and they all have their own role. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're missing one or one is in decline, then it affects all the others around it.
1: That's just a phenomenal. That's so good that you got to swim in the kelp forest and experience that, that ecosystem. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, We're going to talk more about what you're doing today at the Ocean River Institute and some of the campaigns you're working on, um, stuff like that. So we'll be right back after this break.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1 472 5788. Again, that's 1 472 5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer.
1: Hi. I'm talking with Noah Randall, and Noah is uh, interning here for the spring before starting Smith College in the fall, and uh, we pay her hourly, so if you'd like to make a contribution to the Ocean River Institute, it would be greatly appreciated by Noah and the rest of us so that she can have some funds to help with her college expenses. Uh, If you want to support us, this is the advertisement again, Uh, it's... uh, www.oceanriver.org and you just push the support uh, word at the top of the page there and it'll walk you through how you can make a modest donation. It sure would help. Um, mostly how people help us here at the Ocean River Institute is that they get connected. They stay in touch with what we're doing. So I'm very grateful to all of you who are listening in on this program and I invite you to uh, visit our website www.oceanriver.org and subscribe for our e-alerts. So, when we have an issue, it's about twice a month, we send out an e-alert that will tell you what's happening, what the decisions are being made right now by decision makers and how you can make a difference in informing them and helping them know that they're making the right decision, that they've heard from real people and not just the interests that are pushing the decisions around. Uh, also, you get to hear about the successes we've had and some of our trials and tribulations. Uh, and You can hear about, you can learn about this radio show and other radio shows we do, uh, we post information about that. So please keep in touch with us by by joining with the Ocean River Institute. Um, Noah, uh, as an intern, uh, there are several different things you do here, and and we've got it set up so you're able to just come in and pick up on something because there are a number of projects you're working on. And uh, one project is that... uh, the other day I had a conversation with Wolcott Henry, who lives down in Jupiter, Florida. And Wol was saying that there are all these sharks seen off of the coast there. Uh, and apparently it's a great area for sharks. Sharks is a reef off there that uh, is world famous for the amount of limestone that it has there, the very calcareous, full of shells, limestone. And this body of water is the narrowest section of the Gulf Stream. This is where the Gulf Stream has to flow the fastest between the Bahamas and Florida because it's the tightest squeeze. It's the bottleneck, I guess. And uh, so Wall was saying, wouldn't it be great if we could have a sanctuary for the sharks so that when there's a big group of sharks out there, the uh, commercial and recreational fishermen just don't go out and harvest them, but that they can have sanctuary for that moment that they're off the shore there. Right. And, and so... Um, You've been uh, researching that, and uh, tell us what what you learned about that this concept of the shark sanctuary.:
2: Yeah, so this would be in the area um, of the Straits of Florida, which is what Rob was talking about. So it's a pretty unique unique um, habitat. Um, because you have the Gulf Stream flowing so quickly and these um, two sort of um, the continental shelf uh, you know narrow is pretty narrow, uh, the, where the shelf drops off. Between the two shelves, it's really narrow. So you have some. So the Bahamas are actually off the continental
1: shelf, until there's some pretty deep water right, right there. Yeah. Yeah. Who knew? But yeah.
2: Yeah. So there are some, like off the Florida, way off the Florida coast, um, past the continental shelf, there's some deep sea corals, um, which are doing pretty well. And they have, you know, they rely on a lot of the the zooplankton that's. Um, moving through the Gulf Stream, but um, closer to the coast.
1: Well, wait, how are deep sea coral different from brain coral or elkhorn coral?
2: Well, they take a because they they take a super long time to um, they take a super long time to grow because they're actually outside of the um, photic zone. So, so they, below
1: the, right. the light goes. So they're right. Right in the dark, those poor dudes.
2: Yeah, so they have to catch so, all their food.
1: No zooanthella for them, right? right. Yeah, right. <laughs> so they they can't. So like right. said, so they have okay. chemicals and they grab stuff,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and consequently they grow wicked slowly. They grow wicked slowly. Yeah. yeah. So. Dredging. Well, that's cool. So this this is this will be the area that would include. Yeah.
2: Hopefully. So what's, what's the would...
1: danger against? Yeah. Coral? So
2: so these corals could be disturbed by dredging, um, which is like a fishing technique where you have a very large net that usually scrapes along the bottom. Um, to be able to catch as many fish as possible. But yeah, and you could also have dredges that drop down to mm-hmm. grab clams or scallops right. or stuff like that. So, um, But that rips the coral out of the ground, and then it it can't grow. because it's
1: Yeah, off the west coast of Ireland, they found uh, a, a trawler was pulling up hunks of uh, deep-sea coral, and it was 4,000 years old They aged the hunk of coral. Oh, wow. So only three or four of the toes out of 27 toes had... Deep sea corals, but when you're pulling 4,000 year old coral out, that's pretty you don't crucial. want to do that every year. Yeah, so um, this is great. What are the sharks that they found out there?
2: Yeah, so the the sharks are the lemon shark and the sandbar shark. Those are the two sharks that are mostly doing the. They're congregating together, um, you know, off the coast near Jupiter, sort of all the way down towards Palm Beach. Um, that's where we're thinking maybe the the area would be from Palm Beach to Jupiter, Florida, which is a pretty long section, but um, that whole area, that's the sharks migrate all the way down um, during the winter months when it's cooler to go further south.
1: So Further south, but you're finding that this is an essential habitat Absolutely. for the lemon shark and for the, sand the sandbar shark. Bar shark. Right. The sandbar shark is also called the thick-skinned shark, mm. so maybe they'll have some thick-skinned critters down there or something. Um, So that's one of the things you're doing, and then you're also helping us. We are in the middle, uh, actually today, sending out letters to the National Marine Fisheries Service. They are trying to protect and foster uh, recolonization of the Elkhorn coral and the um, Staghorn coral. And do you want to tell us a little bit about What's special about those corals compared to, say, brain coral or other corals? Yeah,
2: so these corals, um, they are in the photic zone, so they get light. So um, they actually, within them, contain these um, photosynthesizing algae called zooxanthellae, um, which are kind of dinoflagellate. And um, so these um, photosynthesizing algae create, use the sunlight to create energy that the um, coral can actually use and doesn't need to, you know, it doesn't need to catch its own, its own um, food. So it can use the food that's generated within it. Um, so um, it's it's super important that the water clarity in the area where they live is is good quality, um, so that the algae can photosynthesize to the maximum um, potential that they have. Um, because if the water is foggy, then they can't get as much light as they would normally get, and then the coral doesn't get as much food as it.
1: They don't want to live in soup because they're not going to catch the critters and stuff in the soup. Right. They want clear water to get maximum sunlight. Right. Especially the, the elkhorn is flattened out like sand like you were mm-hmm. saying and they're different browns and, and then the staghorn corals are more like pencil or rods that are like you know, up to an inch thick and stuff. Yeah. And, and so uh, National Marine Science found it, no, no, yeah, National Marine Fisheries Service is um, trying to Address climate change issues to save Elkhorn and saghorn coral, and they're saying, "Look, guys, for this these corals to prosper, you need to have um, clear water. So we don't want carbon in the atmosphere. We we want to set the level at 350 back, push it back from 400 something to 350 parts per million of carbon of carbon in the atmosphere. So." The, the National Marine Science, the National Marine Fisheries Service NIMS, is asking people to reduce their carbon footprints in order to push back the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, so that we can have healthier coral reefs, especially the elkhorn and the um, staghorn corals.
2: And it's it's super important that you know everyone is really involved in this, and um, you know everybody has to do their best to reduce their carbon emissions because one person doing it is not going to make a difference, but if everyone works on it, then, then we can help try to save the corals. And how are people helping us with this mailing to the uh, National Marine Fisheries Service? Yeah, so we have a lot of people who signed this um, letter that we wrote. Um, so I think we have about over 3,000 signatures. Um, so hopefully that will convince the, you know, the National Marine Fisheries Service that they're, they're doing the right thing. <laughs> and where are the letters coming from? They're coming from all over the United States so, and um, in other parts of the world as well.
1: Right. I mean, we were glad to see the people from the U.S. Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico. These are, you know, elkhorn, staghorn coral reefs, big places. Yeah. And citizens of those American territories are writing in, as well as every state. Mm-hmm. I mean, saw Wyoming and South Dakota and Iowa. They're all writing in saying we care about deep sea, about uh, elkhorn corals and staghorn corals. And we want n- uh, nymphs to set the parts per million for carbon at 350. Mm-hmm. And so, you've been working hard to organize everyone's comments, right? What have right. you done to their comments?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's I think important to you know they they want to say something about the coral, but sometimes if it's if it's not um, worded in a way that that's clear, uh, it's a little bit distracting. So I've been working on um, clarifying the comments and organizing the people's names so that um, they're organized by state so we can see sort of where, where the most um, people who care about these issues are coming from and, and that it's sort of from all well, over.
1: That's exactly right. And some of our letters go to congressmen and senators and representatives, and they like to know who in their district is written. So you're good to put it into the order of state and district so that people can see. And they can also see who the neighbors are and who right. are the you know, other people in the area. Uh, in the case of nymphs, they just want to see good distribution, so you make it easy for them that way. And uh, we're unusual because not only will we send them electronic copy, we will print out a paper copy. And so and it's quite a lot of pages, isn't it? It's
2: like, uh, yes. It's, like it's probably over 100 pages. Over 100 pages,
1: back to back. And, um, well, of course, yeah. And uh, we use small fonts so that we can get as many names. So it's like the two columns, so it's like reading a newspaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the idea is to have a paper copy in the decision makers office so that other people in the vicinity can poke through it and see comments from the most unexpected places. I mean who knew someone in Montana cares about writing about yeah. Elkhorn The all different kind of health they have up there, but they are going for the Elkhorn corals.
2: Yeah. And it makes a statement if you you know, if you have that piece of you that huge chunk of tree in your office, you know, saying, This matters um, you know, yeah. people will see it and they'll notice it and maybe they'll see something about it.
1: Exactly. And it makes it easier for the decision makers to say, look, I've got to decide this way because 3,000 people from every single state and three territories are calling for it. And right. you, you may be of special interest, but this is a democracy and we listen to the most people we can and stuff. So you guys who are listening can really help just by going to www.oceanriver.org And you'll see there are six causes with pictures on on the home page, and you can pick any one of those, and most of them will lead you to a letter you can sign or an action you can take. Um, And and please take a look. Pick the one you want to help out with, uh, whether it be the herring or the tuna or stewardship or elkhorn coral. Take a look. Check us out. Um, Noah, we're out of time, but I really want to thank you for uh, taking the time to tell us more about the Garibaldi fish and the kelp forest and your life at sea,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, sailing the Pacific Ocean on a 134-foot uh, research vessel. I guess you can't call it a schooner, a sailing ship,
2: yeah. tall sailing ship.
1: Um, thank you.
2: Yeah, and thank you for letting me have this opportunity at Ocean River. It's been great to sort of learn about how, um, the you know, marine, like, Marine legislation gets passed, and, and the process that goes into you know trying to do ocean conservation. Uh,
1: thank you. That's just been great. Thank you all for listening to uh, this broadcast of Moyers Environmental Dialogues, and we'll be back next week. Um, and Noah's going to tr- you're going to join me next week, right? Yes. And uh, we'll have more interesting stuff to talk about. So until then, we wish you all healthy oceans and please help us reducing our carbon footprints. Thanks a lot for listening.
0: Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then.